Wednesday, December 12th, 2012, episode number 29 of the Football Nation Today podcast with Alex Reamer on footballnation.com. Episode number 29 of the Football Nation Today podcast, hosted by yours truly, Alex Reamer, published Wednesdays on footballnation.com. And for your downloading convenience in the iTunes store, please subscribe to the Football Nation Today podcast and the other shows on footballnation.com in the iTunes store if you have yet to do so. It was the week that was across the National Football League, and of course it promises to be another spectacular weekend of football this upcoming week. And to help us break all of that down, especially the results from this past Monday night, Patriots and Texans game, we welcome in Shalise Manza-Young, Patriots reporter for the Boston Globe. Shalise and I talk about the impact of the results of the Patriots trouncing uh, over the Houston Texans and uh, why the Patriots, frankly to me, are playing like they are unequivocally the best team in the NFL. So uh, Shalise Manziung of the Boston Globe joins me in the first down segment. You most certainly do not want to miss that. A lot of good quality Patriots conversation. And we also speak about a couple other round-the-league notes, including are the Giants now, once again, the best team in the NFC? What did their big win over the Saints tell us over the weekend? Uh, also in the second down segment, we take a look at the biggest off-field NFL stories of the week. Uh, the Bounty Gate player verdicts have been overturned by former Commissioner Paul Tagliabue. I tell you why with this announcement. There is now a chink in Sheriff Goodell's armor, and why some of the elation players are expressing at this is actually quite troubling when you look a little deeper at it. We'll discuss all that and a whole lot more. Football Nation Today, episode number 29. We'll be right back with Shalise Manzi-Young, Patriots reporter for the Boston Globe. Welcome back to the Football Nation Today podcast. It's our first down segment where we take a look at the biggest on-field NFL stories from the past week. And to help us out with that, we bring on one of our returning champions, Shalise Manzi-Young, Patriots beat writer for the Boston Globe. Shalise, how are you today? I'm good, Alex. How are you? I am doing well. Again, we're talking with Shalise Manzi-Young of the Boston Globe here on Football Nation Today. Now, Shalise, one of the big cliches coming out of last night's game, Patriots-Texans, was... The Texans just weren't ready for the big stage. So, Shalise, let me ask you, why specifically were the Texans just not ready for that big stage? What did you see on Monday night? Um, You know, I don't know that it was necessarily the stage. I think, you know, maybe it was just that they weren't quite as, as good as everybody thought they were. You know, I talked to Devin McCourty after the game, and his brother Jason plays for the Titans, and, of course, the right. Titans face the Texans twice a year. And Jason told Devin, you know, if you guys can prevent big plays and you can stop the run, your team will dominate because they aren't as good as it looks like they are. And that's exactly what happened. You know, the Patriots didn't give up the big plays. Obviously, they did a tremendous job containing Arian Foster. And look what happened. They dominated. You know, Gary Kubiak was too stubborn to, you know, realize that, hey, you know, we might have Arian Foster, but it's just not going to be there today. And he waited far too long to try to pass the ball more. And that, you know, even with the secondary being better right now than it certainly was at the beginning of the season, I still think that's probably where you're going to have success offensively against the Patriots defense right now. 
particularly with Vince Wilfork just being absolutely amazing up front. Gerard Mayo is making more plays, and Brandon Spikes is just, you know, Brandon Spikes in, in that run game. Right. Yeah, you know, Shalise, to go off uh, something one of your colleagues, Chris Gasper, wrote this morning, uh, he talked about the Texans' offense, and you mentioned how, you know, they may not be as good as we thought, but, you know, they are the second-highest scoring offense in the league. They have Andre Johnson, Arian Foster, two of the best skill position players in the league. Matt Schaub looked mediocre at best last night, but he won 15 of his last 16 games prior to Monday night's game and threw 26 touchdowns in that span. So, I mean, we can say that's an elite Houston offense, and the Patriots' defense stifled him. They made them look like a second-class team. So you talked a little bit about the defensive progression. If you could expand on that, what specifically, uh, what's the biggest thing you've seen improving this defense from uh, the first half of the season and uh, to now what we saw this past Monday night? I think the biggest thing is really in that secondary. I think it, it's two things. I think moving Devin McCourty back to safety and keeping him there for the rest of the season has been tremendous. I don't know that that's necessarily gotten the type of attention that it deserves. You know, they made that big trade for Akeem Salid, and that was the big splashy move that everybody got excited about. And the Devin thing sort of flew under the radar, but you know, he is an incredibly intelligent player. You know, I remember shortly after he was drafted, Bill Belichick said when it came to breaking down film in the pre-draft process, Ray Lewis was probably the best player he'd ever seen. And Devin McCourty was right near the top. So obviously, I think just him being back there, seeing everything in front of him, being able to communicate with all of his teammates and get them lined up has made a huge impact. I think Devin's playing with a lot more confidence than he did when he was out at cornerback. And then having to leave has allowed you to bump Kyle Arrington inside. And Arrington, obviously, to this point anyway, seems like he is much better as a nickelback, or as the Patriots call it, the star position, than he is as an outside cornerback. So I think those two things have played a huge role, and it's allowed the front seven to, you know, maybe blitz a little more, maybe take a few more risks, because... I think finally the secondary is sort of settled and you're seeing results from them, whereas you really haven't the last couple of years. For sure, that's a great point, Shalise. It really seems as if once Tlaib came over a couple weeks ago in the ensuing weeks, everybody back there has seemed a lot more comfortable and seemed to fit their roles a lot better. Um, you mentioned the coaching a little earlier. I want to quickly get back to that. To me, the differences between Bill Belichick and Gary Kubiak can be told between the story of two defensive linemen, J.J. Watt and Vince Wilfork. You mentioned the impact Wilfork had on Monday night, four tackles, forced fumble, a sack. The one big D lineman who you have to account for on the Patriots is Vince Wilfork. The Texans had no answer. Whereas conversely, J.J. Watt on the Houston side of the football was held without a sack and a tackle for a loss for only the second time this season. He's the one guy on the Houston defensive line who can't have beat you. Patriots devised a game plan that didn't allow Watt to beat them. The Texans didn't have an answer to Wilfork. That, to me, too, Shalise, big difference between Belichick and Kubiak. Uh, for Bill Belichick, it seems like you have to use your second or third best guys to beat him. And the Patriots never seem to get beat by that opposing team's star defensive player. They always seem to game plan so well for the other team's most uh, prolific attacker. No, absolutely. And that's what they do really on both sides of the ball. Right. You know, they, they got ready for Arian Foster. We saw the job that they did against him. And in those situations, you know, that's when Matt Schaub has to step up and it's on him to try to win the game with the passing attack. And, you know, as you said, they knew that J.J. Watt, look, Bill Belichick doesn't, he, he always talks people up, but he doesn't toss around phrases like best defensive player in the league too freely. And that's what he said he believes J.J. Watt is before this game, that 
Watt should be the defensive player of the year in the NFL. So he clearly knew that Watt was somebody they had to focus on, and they did, and they figured out a way to neutralize him. And there was only one time, a couple of times, when it seemed like Watt was uncovered. You know, there was that one time when he came through the middle. That obviously was a mental mistake for the offensive lineman, and Tom Brady got drilled on that particular play, which I'm sure Brady wasn't thrilled with. Right. Um, But, you know, like you said, what happens then for the offense of the Texans that the film is there, you know, the film is there on Vince Wilfork that you see that he is just an absolute disruptive force in the middle of the field. So how do you counter that? You know, do you maybe not run through the middle of the field? That might be, you know, the first thing you try not to do. And the other thing is, you know, double team him, triple team him, do whatever you have to do to try to neutralize this guy and take him out of the equation. And like you said, it just seemed like Houston did not account for a will for it the way that the Patriots accounted for Watt. Yeah, I wouldn't advise running straight up the middle against the Patriots and Vince Wilford, that's for sure. <laughs> Talking with Shalisa Manzi-Young, a Boston Globe here on uh, Football Nation today. Shalisa, on quarterbacks, I, mean, I think we've seen it's easier than ever before for quarterbacks to accumulate statistics in the NFL. I mean, if you don't pass for, you know, for a completion percentage north of 60, uh, you, you essentially suck in today's day and age. <laughs> but going off of what we saw on Monday night, though, I look at a guy like Matt Schaub, who's accumulated statistics with the best of them, but, you know... I don't think you can call that elite. So I guess the question is, yes, it's easier than ever before to accumulate statistics, but when we talk about elite quarterbacks in the AFC, does it still just come down to the truly elite ones? In this case, Tom Brady, and I'll throw Peyton Manning in there as well. You know, it's interesting because I looked at the Patriots' six-game win streak going into that, and you run down the list of quarterbacks they faced in that time. You know, Mark Sanchez twice. Uh, Andrew Luck, who, you know, he does have greatness. You know, you can see that he's right. probably going to be great someday. I like his future. chutzpah, Shalise. I like his chutzpah, Luck. Exactly, exactly. Um, but you look at the list of quarterbacks they faced in that time, and I thought that Matt Schaub was going to, you know, give them a real challenge. I thought that last night was a prove-it game in my eyes. Not that, you know, they have to necessarily prove <laughs> things to me, but I wasn't convinced that they had beaten anybody worth a darn. Right. So I really wanted to see if they could carry that over last night. And obviously they did. And I was surprised that, you know, Schaub wasn't maybe as, as good as I thought he would be. Um, obviously that, you know, Kubiak is the play caller there. And is it that he doesn't have the freedom like Tom Brady does to, you know, if, if he sees something that, he can change things on the fly. Um, does he tend to lock in too much on one receiver? Does he rely too much on Andre Johnson, maybe? So, you know, he, he in the end, he wasn't as big of a challenge, and he, he wasn't the threat that I expected him to be. And that's not to, to diminish the effort that the Patriots defense put in at all, but I just thought that, you know, he would be not I, – I didn't think he was, you know, truly elite, like you said, but I certainly thought that he would be tougher for the defense than Mark Sanchez. Right. Yeah, I think we learned, though, Shalise, there's a difference between accumulating statistics, which every quarterback does these days if you're not named Mark Sanchez, and uh, being elite. And I don't think Schaub clearly is at that level yet. Shalise Mann's Young Boston Globe. A few more questions to wrap up here. I know we're looking ahead. We're off the big Houston win, but the show is published on Wednesdays, so the 49ers come to town on Sunday. 
We know about their physical defense, their linebacking core, uh, but their offense, I think, certainly is behind Houston's, and I'm a big Con Kaepernick guy, but I think that 49ers offense isn't even close to the Texans. I don't think that's much of a debate. So given how well the Patriots are playing right now, and how they've just steamrolled through Houston on Monday night, uh, is that San Francisco matchup on Sunday night as marquee an affair as we made it out to be earlier in the season? Will it serve as big of a test as we thought maybe it would? Um, you know, I don't even know if it's as big of a you, – you look at it a little bit differently even this morning as you did right. yesterday morning. You right. know, I, I think – certainly I think top to bottom, the 49ers' defense is deeper right. than the Texans' defense. The Texans have had problems against the pass for much of the season. I think the secondary of the 49ers is stronger. Um, so I think there's that. You know, obviously they're only giving up like 14 or 15 points per game. The Patriots obviously have been scoring a lot more than that. So I think if you're the 49ers, what you want to do is keep Tom Brady off the field. You know, I think it's something that the Patriots have done in the past with uh, Peyton Manning is your best defense is sort of, you know, to, to make sure that Tom Brady isn't on the field. If you can keep it in a low scoring game, I think the Patriots are five and eight over the last couple of years. If, if they score 24 points or less. Yeah. So, you know, if you're the if you're the 49ers, you're trying to do that, you know, and hopefully the Patriots, if you're the Patriots, you should be prepared for something like that. And it looks like now the defense is finally in a place where, you know, the offense can put up 24 points and it's not, you know, you're sitting there biting your nails because you really don't believe that the defense can can win if, you know, you're saying, okay, we're only going to put up 24 points and you have to hold them to 23. You really feel like they can do that at this point. I'm going to be a real jerk, Shalise, and bring up the um, drubbing the Patriots gave the Jets on Monday night a couple of years ago. I'm going to be a real negative, cynical jerk, and everyone's going to hate <laughs> me for bringing it up. But I am going to bring it up and say that game, of course, proved to be irrelevant come that January. Um, could that could we learn a lesson from that when getting too uh, amped up about the Patriots after this Monday night game? Or do you think that you can't compare two seasons, uh, yada, 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 every team is different? Well, you know, I think the one thing that, one of the many things that I've learned from being around Bill Belichick is he certainly is not going to let them look at last night as the, the be all end all, you know, even Logan Mankins was saying it after the game last night, yep, this was a good win for us, but the biggest game of the year is not last, not last night. It's in February, obviously um, I'm paraphrasing, but right. you know, they know that last night was a big win. I think the players were really happy that they won. I think they were kind of, pissed off everybody was talking about the Texans and their little Letterman jackets <laughs> and they were like, Well, you know, let we'll show you type of thing. And and they did that. Um but you know, Belichick will bring that up and I'm sure Tom Brady remembers that game and, you know, Bart Scott and, you know, being a jet on their field, um, and all that foolishness that they did that that game the Jets did. So, you know, it is, you know, one year to the next, but, you know, Bill Belichick is not gonna let them think that last night is okay now we have everything sewn up it's it's this week you know they have another big challenge this week jacksonville and miami not as big a <laughs> challenge but you know last year they ended with cream puffs and they still made it to the super bowl so i think they're going to get a couple of good challenges the more you know learning tools things that they can figure out what they do well what they don't do so well and then they can go forward into the postseason uh, the Giants had a big statement, one of their own, uh, last week, Shalise, of scoring 50-plus on New Orleans. Um, if they're operating on all cylinders, are the Giants still the best team in the NFC? 
you know, I, I certainly think they're in the discussion. Um, I'm still intrigued by the 49ers. Um, you know, I, I just, that defense is so fantastic. Um, like I said, from top to bottom, you've seen flashes from Kaepernick. It, it, it's funny to me when you hear Alex Smith say, you know, the only thing I did was get a concussion. The first thing I thought was, well, the only thing Drew Bledsoe did was damn near die. So, <laughs> you know, he lost his job to something far more, not to minimize concussions, but, you know, you got a concussion, Drew Bledsoe was in the hospital, and he lost his job. So this is how cutthroat the NFL is. And, you know, Kaepernick probably isn't the next Tom Brady because I think there's probably only one Tom Brady. But, you know, I, I just think that they're they're intriguing to me. I know they've had ups and downs, um, but I think that's to be expected for a lot of teams. Um, but, yeah, the Giants – Look, they, they have the pelts on the wall. You know, the, a lot of that roster is the same roster that it was last year. There's still a fair number of guys who are on the roster from that 2007 championship. So they know what it takes to win. We know that we see this from them every year that it gets to be, oh, it's Thanksgiving. I think we should start playing well now. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, they, they know what it takes to win. I'm sure it gives um, Tom Coughlin a great deal of agita that for the first, you know, 11 weeks of the season, they're like messing around before they decide, you know, oh, shoot, we should start, you know, doing better now. But, you know, I, you know, I definitely do. I think that they're right there. Um, and like I said, I'm still intrigued by San Francisco. Last question, Shalise Manzi, Young Boston Globe, as always, we thank you for your time. Um, just a personal debate that we've had on the show over the past couple weeks. Um, of course, Drew Brees broke his, you know, had the consecutive games with a touchdown pass record. Atlanta broke that a couple weeks ago. Tom Brady's on pace to break that for week seven. We've also had a lot of MVP talk. Is it Brady? Is it Manning? Is it Adrian Peterson, maybe, in Minnesota, what he's done? Uh, my question, Shalise, is on a scale of one to ten, how excited do you get about individual awards? Uh, I'm at about a three and a half. I'm wondering uh, what you are, given that you've covered the league for as long as you have. Um, I would probably say, in terms of excitement, not that excited. I think it's all in the ESPN creation, Shalise. It's all something for Skip Bayless um, and Stephen A. Smith to yell about on first take. No, I don't think so. I think, you know, the NFL MVP, I think it, it means a little bit more. Um, you know, this is something that's voted on by, it's only 50 people who get to vote on it. It's not like the Heisman voting where it's, what, like 3,000 right. people get to vote on it. And some forget um, to even vote, like Mike Francesa. <laughs> right. It's, you know, it's 50 people, and they take the job very seriously. Um, so I think it has a little bit more cachet. Um, I think it needs to go to the right person. I certainly, you know, I, I, I personally wrestle with, do you go with the best player in the league or do you go with the best player on a playoff contending team? You know, like, cause that would sort of take Peterson out of the equation a little bit because they're not right. one of the three or four best teams in the league. The other thing is personally, as great as Adrian Peterson is, he's still, he's not a quarterback. You know what I mean? Like oh, no, quarterback, quarterbacks drive the, the train. Um, so, you know, I do think, you know, you're looking at, Tom Brady, you're looking at Peyton Manning, who certainly he and Peterson actually might be duking it out for combat player of the year. Um, not that that's like the marquee award, but <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I don't know that I get excited, but I like to see that it goes to the right person. Um, you know, and I don't necessarily, I'm not sure if that's, you know, a receiver or a running back. I think, you know, quarterback, a tremendous defensive player, I think should certainly get consideration in that, in that in that instance, but um, 
yeah, it's interesting to see how it shakes out with that sort of stuff. I can dig it. I can dig it. Shalise Manzian <laughs> does a great job covering the Patriots for the Boston Globe, Reader Daily in the Globe, and also online, boston.com. Shalise, as always, really appreciate the time. Uh, have a great rest of the week, and I'm sure we'll talk to you soon down the line. Thanks, Alex. Take care. Again, big thanks go out to Shalise Manzian, Patriots reporter for the Boston Globe, for joining us here today on the Football Nation Today podcast. Hopefully you all enjoyed the conversation with Shalise. I know it was a little Patriots heavy, but, I mean, there's no doubt about it. The Patriots-Texans game from this past Monday night, by far the biggest game of the past week in the NFL, and maybe arguably the biggest game of the year in the NFL. A debate we've had all season long is about the AFC hierarchy. Where does everyone fit in? Well, I think our questions are answered, at least for the time being, here on Wednesday, December 12th. The Patriots right now are the best team in the AFC, and even though the Texans still have a better record than they do by one game, and, uh, you know, I would say the Patriots, the way they're playing, may very well be the best team in the entire league right now. And as Shalise was saying, it's not just the offense, which has always been there, but it's now the defense and the transformation they have made in the second half of the season, and that was on full display this past Monday night uh, on ESPN's Monday Night Football. But moving on to our second down segment, taking a look at the biggest off-field NFL story of the week. And this week, I'm de- I decided to do a revisit the Bounty Gate situation, something, of course, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, in the show's inception over the past summer. Over the past summer, uh, stories lost heat, lost tr- it's lost ground as the season has progressed. But in the news again, because it was announced yesterday afternoon that former Commissioner Paul Tagliabue, who of course was assigned to review all the Bounty Gate suspensions and documents, uh, overturned the player suspensions handed out by current NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell, and he vacated the discipline handed to linebackers Jonathan Vilma and Scott Fujita and defensive linemen Will Smith and Anthony Hargrove. Uh, This is coming from an official report from uh, the Sporting News' website, quote, Although Tagliabue, per league spokesman Greg Alio, affirmed the factual findings of Goodell to the point that the players were deemed to be in the wrong for their alleged involvement in the pay-to-injure program better known as Bounty Gate, there was not enough evidence for Tagliabue to approve the league's original punishments for Vilma, Fujita, Smith, and Hargrove. Unlike Saints' broad organizational misconduct, Player appeals involve sharply focused issues of alleged individual player misconduct in several different aspects, uh, Tagliabue said in his statement. My affirmation of Commissioner Goodell's findings could certainly justify the issuance of fines. However, this entire case has been contaminated by the coaches and others in the Saints organization. Um, so what former Commissioner Tagliabue is saying there is, yes, the players did it. They knew they were doing it. The players are guilty of these acts that Goodell found them to be guilty of. But they're off the hook. It's really the Saints organization's fault. It's the Saint coach's fault. Yes, the players participated. They knowingly participated. But eh, even though they were guilty, even though they did these things, not enough here to suspend them. You know, we could find them, but yeah, we're going we're gonna to take them off the hook here. That's what this is. To me, this is taking the players off of the hook. They're adults. They should be responsible for their actions. I'm not saying the coaches should skate free either. No, the coaches' penalties were certainly appropriate and harsh. Just as the player penalties should be here as well. The players didn't have to carry out the orders by Saints coaches. And if anybody remembers the sound that was released from the Saints defensive locker room, 
The Saints defensive players seem just as excited about Bountygate as former defensive coordinator Greg Williams was. You know, it wasn't Greg Williams standing out there on an island uh, forcing these Saints players to participate in this Bountygate program. No, uh, if you listen back to the audio, it seems as if the Saints players were not just knowing participants, but willing, enthusiastic participants in Bountygate. So to me... This is letting the players off the hook. It's improperly letting the players off the hook. They're adults and thus should be responsible for their actions. Um, the other big part of this story is that, as I said in the opening, this now leaves a big crack in Sheriff Goodell's armor. Uh, Vilma and these players showed that if you fight the league, it is possible to win not just the battle, but also the war. Now, when these suspensions were originally overturned, myself and many others said, okay, Vilma and the players won this particular battle, but they will not win the war. Eh, no, wrong. Vilma and these players didn't just win that battle, they won many battles, and in fact won the war. They beat Roger Goodell in the NFL executive office. And, you know, this shows. If you fight the league, if you continue to go at them, and continue to appeal, if you feel you have a strong case, which Vilma and these players obviously feel they had, it is possible to win. So this is now, there is now certainly a big crack, or chink if you will, in Sheriff Goodell's armor. Um, but the troubling aspect of it is this. I have a problem with a lot of the venom that's been spewed towards Goodell and the NFL executive offices over the past couple of years by players in regards to these bounty gate suspensions and especially fines handed out for illegal hits. Because ultimately, with the harsh bounty gate suspensions, player suspensions, I should say, uh, the you know multi-thousand dollar fines for illegal hits, um, ultimately, what all these things do is it's an attempt to make the NFL a safer league. Now, you can argue, you know, the motive behind it. You can say that Goodell doesn't necessarily have player safety on his mind. He's more worried about the public relations aspect of it. He's more worried about settling the lawsuit in court with the former NFL players. We can debate the motives all we want, and I'm willing to entertain that debate. But the fact is, the multi-thousand dollar fines for legal hits, these harsh bounty gate player suspensions, all were, have been handed out in order to try to make the NFL a safer league. And players, by so vehemently protesting these efforts, are hurting their own cause. How can you advocate, like Jonathan Vilma did as head of the NFLPA, for player safety by day, but then participate, knowingly and willingly participate, in these bounty gate programs by night? How can you do that? You know, how can you on one hand talk about concussion awareness, but then on the other hand, complain and throw a hissy fit on Twitter every time a multi-thousand dollar fine is levied out to a safety on your team for tackling with his helmet, you know, leading with his helmet. You can't have it both ways. You know, I mean, Drew Brees tweeted out congratulations to his teammates for having their suspensions vacated. You know, tweet out congratulations. Good to see this has been resolved. Well, would Brees feel the same way here? If he was Brett Favre, a fellow star quarterback who was targeted by the Saints defensive bounty program? I think not. And I've said this all along. To me, it comes across as hypocritical. 
You know, on one hand, if you're Drew Brees or somebody, you talk about concussion awareness, you talk about protecting the quarterbacks, but on the other hand, if one of your teammates gets fined for an illegal hit for leading with his helmet, you complain, you know, oh, turn us into sissies. You know, or if your defensive teammates take part in a bounty program, you cheer for their suspensions to be overturned, to be vacated. Why? It's hypocritical. You know, I mean, the only way the NFL is truly going to become a much safer league is if the players start to have more respect for each other. And with instances like these, I don't think we're there yet. I don't think the players still have enough respect for each other and their own personal safety. And until we get to that point, I think all other discussion with making the NFL a safer league is rather moot. It comes down to the players and whether they can properly respect each other. And they certainly are sending a lot of mixed messages on these topics. Moving on here to our third down segment. It's the Big Up Slowdown segment where I stay a, uh, say a statement then express my agreement or disagreement with it by saying Big Up or Slow Down. A lot of good ones today. Question number one. The Ravens, after losing for a second consecutive week, fired their offensive coordinator Cam Cameron in favor of quarterbacks coach Jim Caldwell this week. The Ravens are currently 9-4 and four and play the Broncos, Giants, and Bengals to close out the season. Certainly a tough three-game slate. So the question or statement is, big up or slow down? The Ravens are in jeopardy of losing their playoff spot in the AFC. Well, they no longer have that first round bye. It does not appear as if they will recapture that first round bye with the way really both the Patriots and Broncos are playing. Um, but still, I'm going to say slow down here. For this week, if the Ravens lose to Denver this upcoming week and both Pittsburgh and Cincinnati win, then my answer may be different. But as of this recording right now on Wednesday, December the 12th, I'm giving this question to slow down. The Ravens are not in jeopardy to lose their playoff spot because at this stage in the season, a lot of these questions just come down to arithmetic. And in order for that to happen, the Ravens to sit out of the playoffs, uh, they would have to lose out. And both Pittsburgh and Cincinnati would have to go 2-1 and one or win out, and I'm not sure what the tiebreakers are, so maybe they'll have to go, maybe they'll have to win out, I don't know, um, I think Cincinnati may have to win out, given the tiebreakers, but, so, any scenario, though, would mean the Ravens would have to lose out, and, you know, are they gonna lose out, which means they would have closed their season on a five-game losing streak, I, I don't know, I, I just find that to be far-fetched, because the Ravens are still a pretty talented football team, but, are the Ravens going to be one and done? In this year's playoffs, uh, I think most certainly so with the way it's going right now, uh, because the defense is decimated by injuries with Darius Webb, a huge loss for them in the secondary, their star number one corner. Uh, Ray Lewis has been out, Terrell Suggs battling injuries all year long, and even if Lewis and Suggs return for the stretch drive, and, you know, are they going to be 100%? Is, is, is Lewis going to be 100% at this stage? I don't think so. Now, maybe it gives them that emotional lift that's necessary, but. As far as on-field impact, I'm not sure what the Ravens can respect from Lewis if he returns at this point, given his age. Um, so it comes down to the offense for the Ravens, because the defense is older, they've been decimated by injuries, they're still good, but they're not good enough to win you games week in and week out. So it comes down to the offense, and the offense simply is not good enough. 
uh, Joe Flacco continues to turn the ball over at the worst times. We talked about this two weeks ago against Pittsburgh. Ed Reed, the interception in the end zone. Then Flacco fumbles on the very next possession. Uh, well, against Washington last week, Flacco throws a late game interception right in the hands of Linebacker London Fletcher, a terrible throw, a Drew Bledsoe-esque throw for my uh, New England Patriot listeners out there. Remember that. And Flacco does play like a young Drew Bledsoe, a guy who's slow afoot, has a big arm, can throw the deep ball pretty well, but continually makes poor decisions in the pocket. He's immobile in the pocket and just does not play winning football at the quarterback position. And, you know, I don't know if the offensive coordinator change is going to be a huge factor. I liked some of the things Cameron did in Baltimore. I liked the implementation of the hurry-up offense earlier in the season. Cameron recognized the defense was on the back nine. He recognized the offense would have to be in more con- would have to be in control of the game, uh, would have to put up some more points. But the fact is, Joe Flacco is just incapable of running that kind of offense on a consistent basis for the full 60 minutes. Um, now, many around Baltimore are saying they fired Cam Cameron because he didn't give Ray Rice enough touches. Well, I'm sorry. In the year 2012, as the Texans learned on Monday night, uh, the answer to your offensive woes is not giving your running back more touches. You can have the best running back on the planet, Arian Foster, Ray Rice, whomever. It's not going to make a difference when you play the true elite teams of the league. You need a quarterback, and if you're going to center your offense around your running back, I don't care how good your running back is, it's not going to be good enough. It's not going to get the job done. And frankly, I don't know what Jim Caldwell can implement as offensive coordinator, considering the man never speaks. I mean, really, when he was head coach of the Colts, did you ever see his lips move? I didn't see that happen once. He has no play calling experience at, experience at the NFL level. He was an offensive coordinator at Wake Forest prior to prior to joining the Indianapolis coaching staff. Oh, uh, yeah, we all know those juggernauts they had over there at Wake Forest over the years. I mean, please. So I don't even know what Caldwell could implement. I don't know if he's even capable of speaking. I've never actually seen his lips move on the sideline. Um, but the fact of the matter is... You need a quarterback to win in today's NFL, and the Ravens don't have one who's good enough to win with. It's as simple as that. And changing your offensive coordinator at this stage so you can focus your offense more around Ray Rice, your running back, is most certainly not the answer. Even though Rice is a terrific player, he's one of the best running backs in football. But it's not a running back league anymore. It's a quarterback league, and the Ravens do not have the quarterback to win at a high level. It's really as simple as that. Second question, another interesting one. Robert Griffin III has a mild LCL strain. The Redskins have not ruled him out yet for this week's game against Cleveland. Big up or slow down? Robert Griffin III has to change the way he plays if he is to have a long and successful career in the NFL. Another tough question You can certainly go both ways. I respect both opinions on this, but I'm going to say big up here. Yes, I think eventually Griffin has to change the way he plays if he wants to have a long career in this league. Uh, Now, I don't have a major issue with Griffin not sliding last Sunday against Baltimore. It was late in the fourth quarter, a late drive, you're down, you got to score and get the two-point conversion to tie it up. So I understand the urgency there, and I definitely admire Griffin's competitive will. Uh, as, he slid, as he didn't slide because he was fighting for the first down on that run. But still, 
running directly into 300-plus pounds of Haloti Nada uh, is not a good way to prolong your career as a quarterback. I mean, there's a reason running backs have notoriously short career spans because of the punishment they take. Quarterbacks cannot take that kind of punishment. And yeah, quarterbacks are heavily protected in this league, but remember, they're protected when they're in the pocket. Once they move out of the pocket, as Griffin does on a regular basis, a more than regular basis, um, they just become like any other player on the field. And essentially, anything else is kosher. So, you know, you don't want your quarterback to necessarily play like a running back because of all the punishment that running backs take. Now, I understand, too, that this is part of Griffin's game, and this is what makes him such a dynamic, great, and exciting player to watch because of his ability to move out of the pocket and make plays with his feet. I understand that. I'm not saying Griffin should take that out of his game entirely. And, you know, like Cam Newton, Robert Griffin III is a big guy, so he doesn't have to take this out of his game entirely. But what I am saying is he has to be smarter about it continually running into Haloti Nada on a weekly basis uh, is going to shorten your career. There's no doubt about that. So it's a fine line. Griffin shouldn't change the way he plays entirely because, of course, this is what makes him so great. But on the but then again, he has to alter his mindset a little bit in some of these situations because it's just not a way. It's just not a, it's just not conducive to a long career in the NFL. Now, a question about the NFC hierarchy. We spent a lot of time with Charlize Manzi Young of the Boston Globe talking about the AFC. And let's spend the uh, final question here in third down talking about the NFC hierarchy. Uh, the Green Bay Packers beat the Lion last week in snowy Lambeau Field. Uh, and the Bears lost again. The Packers thus hold a one-game lead atop the NFC North as the two squads, Bears and Packers, collided Shoulder Field this Soldier Field this Sunday, excuse me, and it promises to be one of the games of the year. Big up or slow down. The Packers are now undoubtedly the best team in the NFC North with their one-game lead heading into their game against the Bears on Sunday. Um, I say big up here. I think the Packers have shown right now in the middle of December or nearing the middle of December that they are the best team in the NFC North. The Bears have lost two consecutive games, which you just can't do at this juncture in the season if you're a legitimate deep playoff contender. Uh, Charles Woodson and Clay Matthews may return to Green Bay on defense. Uh, so it looks like the Packers' defense is getting more healthy as well. And the Green Bay Packers, like the Patriots, like the Giants certainly, seem to be peaking at the right time. I'm not ready to say they're back to where they were in their Super Bowl season 2010-2011. I don't think their offense is as good as it was then. I don't think their defense is nearly as good as it was then, even with Woodson and Matthews returning. Um, so I don't think the Packers are necessarily Super Bowl contenders out of the NFC right now. But are they the best team in the NFC North? I think they are because I look at the way the Bears have played too. And just deep playoff teams do not play as poorly as the Bears have down the stretch here. And the Packers certainly seem to be playing their best football when it matters most here in the month of December. Time to close out the show with the fourth down segment. It's the Reamer rant, and this week, what's bothering me, uh, really, who's bothering me this week? Well, it's Cam Newton's critics. Oh, yes, remember them, the loud and proud Newton critics in the first half of the season? Uh, where are they now? The Panthers beat the Falcons 30-20 to last week, and Newton had a big day. He threw for 287 yards 
and ran for 116 yards on nine carries, including one of the most spectacular 72-yard touchdown runs you will ever see. I could watch a replay of that all day long. Now, over his last four weeks, Cam Newton has thrown for 11 touchdowns and hasn't turned the ball over once. Let me repeat, over his, over his last four weeks, Newton has thrown for 11 touchdowns and hasn't turned the ball over once. Wow. Uh, people were ready to bury Newton earlier in the season, and he did get off to a poor start. And I think some of the criticism he faced, uh, he certainly deserved. But remember, Newton is 23 years old. That's it. He's 23. Lapses, like he had in the beginning of the season, are expected to happen to 23-year-old players, especially 23-year-old quarterbacks. Uh, it seems as if people are always waiting to knock Newton down, you know, whether it's uh, Panthers owner Jerry Richardson uh, meeting privately with Newton prior to the draft a couple of years ago and, you know, talking about his, his you know, if he wants earrings or something ridiculous like that and how, you know, the face of his franchise can't have earrings. All right, Jerry, how's 1940, how's 1845 treating you? Um, people say his smile isn't genuine enough. You know, he's not a leader on the field. How can I tell he's not a leader? Just the way he looks at his teammates and smiles at him and doesn't smile in post-game press conferences and all sorts of ridiculous nonsense like that. Uh, you know, I mean, there was the eligibility investigation with Newton, but remember, the NCAA closed the 13-month investigation after they were unable to substantiate any allegation of illicit recruiting by Auburn. Uh, plus, the Newton investigation mostly had to do with Cam's father, Cecil, and dirty NCAA recruiting practices. I mean, you know, if we're going to hold dirty NCAA recruiting practices against every star player in the league, uh, we don't have enough time on the show to discuss all the players who would be implicated there. Um, th look, the thing here is Newton has shown this now in the second half of the season, even a little before then, that he has the talent to be a franchise quarterback, which for a team like Carolina is all that matters. Cam Newton is not part of the problem there. Their defense is part of the problem. The lackluster running back threesome is part of the problem. Yeah, the Panthers have a lot of problems on that roster that they have to address over the offseason. But the quarterback position in Cam Newton most certainly is not one of those problems. Let the haters hate Cam because if they're hating you now, they're never going to see the light. Thank you for tuning in to another impassioned edition of the Football Nation Today podcast, hosted by yours truly, Alex Reamer. Again, one last thanks go out to Shalise Manzi Young, Patriots reporter for the Boston Globe, for joining us on the show today. Another note that I'm sure nobody out there cares about, but I have to throw it in. Today is not only my last day of classes here at Boston University for the first semester of the school year, but it is also my 20th birthday. That's right, I'm 20. So, hit me up on Facebook and write a birthday wish on my wall. I do actually keep count of those things. Yeah, I'm that petty. As always, if you want to contact me in between shows, talk about anything we've discussed here. I got a couple of really great emails last week about gun control uh, in our Bob Costa discussion. It's good to know I'm not talking into the abyss. So, please, if you ever want to drop me a line, don't hesitate. 
areamer at bu.edu is my email address. Also, feel free to follow me on Twitter and send me a message there. At AlexReamer1 is my Twitter name. And also, if you want to communicate with other listeners of the show, in addition to myself, feel free to leave a comment here on the show page on footballnation.com. We welcome those as well. Thank you all for listening. Hopefully, you enjoyed this week's show. Uh, Hopefully, you enjoyed this upcoming week of NFL action. I know I will. And we'll be back to recap it all and look forward to the final two weeks of the season next Wednesday. Episode number 30 of Football Nation today. Wow, it means we've been at this thing for 30 weeks. Hard to believe. So thank you all for listening. Your continued listenership is much appreciated. And we'll talk to you next Wednesday. So long. Talk then.